It's it just seems like a disaster. It's like no one's talking about it. Like it might as well not exist, which yeah. I think was kind of everyone's initial impression on it. But I feel almost similarly about you know obviously it exists still, but even talking about the Players Cup just with like with how fast the online meta moves, it's just like this meta game was three or four weeks ago. Like it's just like oh look. ADP, you know, I was looking through all the decks that did well, and it's just really hard. Like, this was before Pikachu really sort of surged to the front. So it just, it just feels too late to really have, take anything too insightful from it. I don't know if you guys feel similarly, but that's just kind of my impression of both, in that there's just, there's not enough publicity on either of them that they just kind of slipped away. I don't, like, I don't know anyone. If, if not for Mikey talking about it last week, I don't know anyone talking, let alone doing the players talking about, let alone doing the players challenge. Right. Oh, wow. I didn't see any of these results. You know what? What do you, what do we want to talk about with this recency bias thing? How do I, like, I, I feel like I'm really bad. At- yeah. So let me, let me, let me try to introduce that a little, cause I can kind of blend it together. And we'll see where it goes. This is a thought I've had, a thought I've kind of shared with other people and really sort of starts with the modern era or at least at a certain point of time when I wasn't playing. And something I just really seem to notice is like you you get made, you're a made player, quote unquote, with with one finish. Like I and I don't want to give too many names. I'm happy to name them, but like, you know. Some like some people just like get one second place, one regionals finish, one nationals first place, and then vanish. But now in the modern era, when when you get that spike, it seems like it's just like no one seems to really question it. It's just like oh, they're sponsored now, whatever, cool. Um, and it's just not something we saw back in the day. You know, it was so much harder to become a name, and I think so much of that is sort of ingrained in the information and how how little. I don't want to say it was clickier then because I think it's still just as clicky now, but you know, it's still, it took time. Like, I don't, I don't know if, you know, back in the day, the good players were like Jason and his friends and it really took a lot of like real energy for them to notice you and things like that. Like Jay Witt's got top eight at worlds and Jason's just, just like, I think he's an above average player, you know, things like that. Whereas now it's just like, Oh, yo, you got second place at the NAIC all the sponsorships. Don't ever worry about doing well ever again. You've got it now. That's just something I noticed and sort of wanted to talk about it, and uh, especially in relation to other games, because I just don't think that would be the case for like Magic or something. People like, and well, Magic Magic's a different case because it's so hard to do well. So it's it's rare that like truly a freak occurrence happens and like a total unknown like tops a pro tour or something like that. But it does happen, and you don't see those players like immediately on channel fireball they often just kind of fade back into obscurity too and again you just don't really see that in pokemon but also more more relatedly there's just this recency thing with online tournaments and i think also my question was just like obviously no one is being made through the online tournaments no one has gone from being an unknown to doing really well on the online players and then we talk about them being a good player we talk about them as being a grinder as being good at the online tournaments and and, and on that note we consistently see people downplay I, you know it's been weeks or so but i know i've seen a tweet or two just like essentially saying like online tournaments don't count you know see you at the next regionals and things like that and 
on that note, my question was just like, are these online events really that much easier? Are they really that distinct and different from regular regionals to sort of discredit them in that way? And I'm not sure. And it's, it's just been odd. So I guess, I guess really what I'm trying to say is that people get made in one tournament IRL, but they don't in online. Why? Is it because the tournaments really are that different? Is it a little of both? You know, we'll talk about it. If that if that makes sense. Dude, let's 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 talk about it right now. I'll I'll just go edit all this back in or something like that, or or kick it off with this because I, I feel like you segued into this really well. Mike, do you have a, like a an opinion on this stuff? This is interesting. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of jumping off points from what Brits. Yeah, was yeah. Saying. I was thinking the same thing. I like there's like there's like five things I want to talk about. That, yeah. What he just said. So I do. I personally, I think the let's start with like the online tournaments versus like in real life events. In some ways, I guess they're easier, but in some ways they're harder too. like, I think whenever I go to a League Cup, for example, I still find myself playing against a significant amount of people, maybe not more than one per event, but usually one per event against like a deck that is just straight up bad like a bad list or a bad archetype or something like that or the player is just like quite poor even with a good deck and it's really just a free win almost every single time that doesn't really seem to be as common in these online events so in that sense like i don't think they're easier in that sense i do think the average player is probably a lot better so maybe the average player is better but the ceiling isn't quite as high maybe you don't have quite as many like very very strong players playing these events i mean there are lots of the you know previous top 16 players that really haven't played at all like i i know my closest friends uh, in the game or some of my closest friends in the game like ross and sam chen really haven't gotten involved in these there's a number of other players that haven't gotten involved in these online events at all you know, but there, but there's a bunch that have, you know, Azul plays in them, Pablo plays in them, etc. So maybe, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe the average is higher, but the ceiling is lower. And that might be one way to look at it. But I definitely, yeah, I don't know. So that's, that, that's just one perspective. I think that's definitely something that is often under discussed when we kind of compare eras of the game to just how you describe your League Cup experience, how you probably get like one free win just someone really new playing not a real deck, someone playing a real deck, but a bad list or something like that. And that happens still. But yeah, maybe maybe once per event or something like that. But, you know, back in the day, at least around when I was starting, and I'm sure some of this depended on your area, of course, some areas are harder than others. But even at the national championship, I remember my first two, maybe three years, you can play five rounds and not play a, a real deck. The year I, the post, the post rotation year, I, and so I guess that was, that one was a different case too, because it was such a fresh meta game that didn't have results for people to net deck, but like still there was, there was six prizes content and things like that, things like that. You had a general idea of what people um, would show up with, but I remember, you know, I just started out 4050 at my first three nats being a, a pretty green player. But just for those reasons, just like hundreds of players were just not competitive in any sort of mm -hmm. sense. And you just don't get that at all anymore. Yeah. I would say, you know, even even for a regional or something, it's it's rare if you get one mm -hmm. um, 
and it's probably the first round or two if you play someone who's just not playing a real deck at all and so and often if it's not a real deck it just beats you because they're a good player playing something <laughs> you didn't expect not because it's kind of like a sort of an off-color deck or something like that but it's yeah. really hard to gauge i think i think the online tournaments are hard but i guess it it, it depends on what we what we're really meaning by difficult because for the online tournaments are hard really for variance reasons more than anything like i can't really speak too much on when you get to the two out of three stage <laughs> um best of one is just so brutal and i think i think so much the way uh, so many of our cards are now just only makes that worse as mm-hmm. we've talked about quite a bit the match all the most of the top matchups are really close but there really aren't too many nuances to them it's just kind of a lot of um hoping my disruption works and yours doesn't and you know finding my key cards at the, the right point in the game my general opinion is has always been that I think the length of a tournament matters more than the quality of players. I think I, I would rather play a smaller tournament with only good players than a regional, I think. I, I just wanted to quickly comment on like what you were saying before about the like old events. Yeah, it's like from like 2004 until like 2010 at least. Like if you didn't, if you were like one of the top players and you didn't start like three and oh, four and oh at every single event, that was very unlucky. Like that, like extremely unlucky to not start because that means you got paired against someone good, quote unquote, good in the first couple of rounds. Like there was like a streak. I just remember like a streak of, I don't know, maybe t- 10 events in a row where I started like three or four and oh. And it's just, that's just how it was. You know, I haven't done well really in any of these online tournaments, but I, I've, I'm never really playing against players. I, I tend to just lose to people I haven't heard of always playing the meta decks. But then in, in testing, I can win games off some of the best players in the world. I can win sets off some of the best players in the world. And, th- and that's sort of what I mean by length. So, you know, even if I'm going to be the worst player for three, four, five rounds, there's just less variance. And I guess if the game is uncomplicated enough, you you can kind of you know, navigate it successfully. And that's, that's just part of the variance too, I guess. But I always, that's why I've always agreed that I'm sure it's a little different now, but back in the day when it was just nationals and worlds, there was this big kind of dispute over whether worlds or U.S. nationals was the hardest tournament. And I, I would always land on U.S. nationals just because of a, a length thing. It's just very, very hard, especially now too, that I think the now nah, I don't know if I like it better or not. I do think it's objectively better day two Swiss versus going straight into a single elimination bracket. But that's also a huge factor in your success back in the day. You go nine zero in a tournament and hit your auto loss in top thirty two. Tough luck. Whereas now you yeah. start nine zero, you really have kind of quite a lot of wiggle room in day two. You can uh, you need to ID like three times, and I think you're fine usually. You can take a couple losses. Once you get to 33, 34 match points, you're good. And that just wasn't the case back in the day. I think these sorts of stories at big tournaments where the, 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 the main one that comes to the top of my head, off the top of my head, was uh, Drew Goritsky at 2008 Nationals. He's, he plays, he makes top 32 with like a weird Ampharos deck, I believe, and just plays against Essa playing like Glaceon level X, which just is, he can't do anything about, but it just seems like he had a really good off meta deck that he makes top 32 with and he hits 
an auto loss right away. And, you know, what would, what would the day have looked like had he gotten four more rounds and then cut to top eight? Plenty of lots of stories like that. I'm sure it would be interesting, you know, an alternative revisionist history type thing to kind of project mm-hmm. what should have won given these new rules or something like that. But, yeah. So, so two other things that I wanted to kind of suss out from, from I think the litany of topics that you kind of unearthed here. Are there people that you guys see at all these tournaments that like, quote, you know, weren't, weren't like well-known players before, but like coming out of, you know, if the pandemic ended tomorrow, people would be like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a big player. I think there's a number of players that if they, you know, I think most of them are younger players, you know, somewhere in the 13 to 17 year old range that maybe haven't had too many opportunities to travel and go to events. And now they're getting the opportunity to play, you know, every day or every other day. So part of it is just that they're playing lots of events. And if you're playing lots of events and you're pretty good, your event, like you're going to on average, you like have a bunch of good results. Right. So, I mean, I'm thinking of people like just some names that immediately come to mind are like Andrew Hendrick, who is Poca Hawkeye, the the kid from Brazil, Vinny, Jake Jake Gearhart. So there's a there's a there's a bunch of there's a bunch of people that are kind of in this category, I think. And if they come back and there's live events and you know they top sixteen or top eight or regional or something like that, I think people will be like, yeah, that makes sense. We kind of saw that they were good, and now that they're now they're proving themselves in the real thing. Yeah, I think of, of Cash Vinder, and I think like yeah, right. he, was, he was quote good, maybe good before, but like because he's on the other side of the planet, I never had interacted with him or like seen anything other than you know some like you know once every six months random result from a Singapore special event or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, and and now you know he's showing up every day with like top eight finishes. Yeah. So, so I I do I do think I do think a lot of these players are very good because they are playing a lot and they're seeing success it's just i guess the question then becomes like who is who is defining who is good and not and i think typically it's been other top players that have been like like that that's always the goal i think for for everyone right it's like to earn the respect of the people that are in the positions that you want to be in and so until you know some of these other top players that aren't really involved in the game right now until they recognize it then then i don't know maybe maybe people won't take it seriously until they say something do you think that is that the ideal sort of metric the ideal sort of world the way we analyze it is that it kind of is seated in some sort of communal opinion where you're you're good if and only if someone thinks you're good or is there not maybe you know some sort of object uh like objectivity we can use to measure good or not. And I think that's a hard question because I, I think a lot of times too, I'm not sure, you know, where we end up going, but psychologically, I think we're predisposed to, you know, we want to discredit a certain player, say, you know, they're just a night march player or something like that. There is, you know, diminish their accomplishments there, things like that. There's just a lot of ways. No one, no one's going to agree at the end of the day. And I just sort of wonder what the, the right way to go about it would be. I think the communal communal opinion is an interesting example, especially with how I was talking about back in the day, that kind of seemed to be all that mattered, whether you were in the right in-group and things like that. Right. Uh, yeah, I, think, I think the nuance there uh, as as a Pokédad, like I think 
hey, there's like a trick to it in that like unlike chess, like being in the in-group is is also something that can predispose you to success because mm-hmm. you get the secret deck mojo. Yep. <laughs> I, mean, I, I remember, at, uh, God, it must have been, I mean, yeah, this was when like Grant and Michael were having their big run, like right before the pandemic. Some tournament we reached out to Katron because he's local to us about about some like thing we were thinking about for the upcoming thing. And he said, dude, I can't talk about uh, decks at all because like I've been invited to join the squad. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. But like the squad is a thing, right? Like yep. and what's interesting is the, the squad is like, a, there's an element of like self-fulfilling prophecy to it in that like, you know, they're not complete idiots. Like Grant is an incredible deck builder and Katron is an incredible deck builder. And when you like invite those deck builders to like build decks with you, you're like, you're, you know, you're theoretically getting the best uh, mojo to like build decks. I think it's interesting too, how it, how it can really snowball you know, just like that. In my own personal experience, I just feel like I, you know, the very first year I qualified for Worlds was really, really close. I was, that was the last year of ELO and I was like 39th, but I, I, I was bouncing around the, the ratings. I forget something had happened, but I was 40, 41st at one point and then they fixed it and I was 39th, but something got reported wrong. Like a singular game, a singular like K32 value game <laughs> was wrong. But anyways, I just, I just barely qualified. And this was sort of when I first started in the game, it was, I wanted to qualify for worlds, but I kind of was just like, I'll probably never do that. That'll never ever happen. And so I, I'm in San Diego in 2011 with a big old case of imposter syndrome. And I just met the right people and affable, I guess, and became friends with the right people. And I just really felt it snowballed from there. I, I made friends with Dustin Zimmerman and Aaron Curry at 2011 worlds. And I forget where, why I became friends with Tyler Nina Mora, but he was a really big part of my success early on too. But yeah, I just like, and then, you know, and then Dustin's a good example because Dustin, I guess both of them were, Dustin and Aaron are both part of LaFonte, which was kind of like the click for the, the 2004 kind of EX era of the game. And that just like, I just kind of immediately had access to that. And then it just snowballed, like, you know, you met more people, you got had access to more metagames, more insight, more decks. And it just, it's really, I've always felt so lucky about that. Like I, I've always felt that so much of my success would have been much different had I, you know, hung out with a different group of people at my first worlds or something like that. So it's always interesting how it builds just kind of based on that. And I think, I mean, for me, I think, that's such a good example of why the game matters or why the game matters to me. And it's so much of that community experience. It's not about being the best. I mean, I would, I would certainly enjoy being the best, I think, but I, I don't think that's why I play Pokemon anymore. Whereas I think maybe five, six, seven, eight years ago, if you asked me, no, I mean, I think I still actually would have said the community mm-hmm. stuff is still more <laughs> important, but I, I think my desire to be, you know, the best player in the world or to win worlds would have been much better. Whereas now I'm kind of like finding a harmony with the game and my personal life or what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the other thing I wanted to explore in your comment there was like, like you talk about like people joining teams and I think we've seen a number of like kind of like faux esports or maybe real esports teams like 
what was it like spice gaming or something and channel fireball and i mean yeah right there have been like a couple of these ultimate spice no that's a deodorant but i don't know but but like so there have been a couple of these like quote sponsored things yeti uh the biggest one uh, uh, for uh, the, the the brief window, but like, what's interesting is, I feel like that's a little more about like, people really want to do it, therefore, like, it, it kind of push it to happen. And, and I guess what I was going to ask is, like, Mike, when I think of like you and and Ross, and you know, I think of Sam as something else because he's always been the self-funded Sam Chen <laughs> company, but but like. Do you guys get those calls or is it like you have to seek those out? And, and you know, big scheme of things, probably these opportunities have basically no value today. But like, Wait, what, what calls are you talking about? Like, like these, like the, the, like join our team. Blah, 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 blah. Like, I'd, I mean, I'd, I think X-Files is something else, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I like, mean, X- X-Files is like. X-Files is just old school gamers being old school. Right. We've never entered. I mean, like we've, we've had brief discussions of like, you know, if we could get sponsored as a team, would we want to? And we always come to the conclusion of no, we wouldn't want to. It's not really the, it's not really the intended goal. X-Files is a, is a lifestyle. (laughs) X-Files is a lifestyle. That's a good way to put it. Ross would, Ross might even get angry with me just mentioning X-Files on a podcast. That that that's the lifestyle of X Files. You, you don't it's talk so about deep underground. Yeah. Even 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 the people on the team don't know they're on the team. <laughs> <laughs> one of the yeah, one of the coolest things. I mean, maybe we should just do like an episode of me talking about like random stuff about X Files because there's like lots of very interesting things. One of my favorite things is that like we. When, it, when people are talking about all these old formats and like different decks and whatnot, I have lists for every single deck ever. Like the most arc, like random deck from like 2008, 2009, doesn't matter. Like you tell me what you're looking for. I have a deck list somewhere on a, on a message board that I can find. All right. So, I, I- I, I like I like that Mike in thirty seconds went from I'm gonna get in trouble for mentioning X Files <laughs> to an episode of X Files stories. <laughs> Ross doesn't listen to the podcast. I was say, that's exactly what I was gonna say. It's oh. a high roll. Ross won't know any better unless. Yeah. <laughs> that's the spirit. We, but yeah, we got We gotta get, make Ross a believer. That's the uh, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right, all right. Are you guys ready to start? <laughs> <laughs> Do the intro and then take all of this and copy paste it somewhere. <laughs> Welcome to the Trash Alanche. As always, I'm Brent Halliburton here with Mike Boucher and Brent Pibus. Attendance is 100%. Going on month five. Month. Wow. I mean, we've been doing this for a long time. Uh, 100% attendance every time. It is amazing. And, and I'm excited to let everybody know that we got in some more five star reviews, including two fantastic reviews from people. The Fifth Horseman 86 says, Awesome podcast. Great podcast for anyone in the competitive Pokemon community. Keen insight from some great players on how to get better as a player in all aspects of the game. Fifth Horseman 86, I am also on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. A couple great <laughs> players and Brent. <laughs> <laughs> Corey Henry writes, great in-depth analysis. And I thought this was a good review worth, uh, worth talking about. This pod is absolutely fantastic. 
that's great. We should talk about that. Nice. The hosts drop a ton of knowledge of the current and past metas. So I did have two questions. I'm a newer player and barely missed qualifying for the Players' Cup. I think if I had better sequencing and a game plan for certain matchups, I could have done it. So what are some tips for better sequencing and planning out a game plan versus certain matchups? The second is about online events like Limitless and Hegster, et cetera. Can you kind of walk me through the registration process, matches, reporting, and general process of the online events? Thanks a lot, and keep up the great work. Corey Henry, thanks a lot. Or Henry Corey, I don't know. <laughs> Corey Henry, but like uh, uh, fantastic reviews. We're up to 14 five-star reviews, guys. We are probably one of the most popular podcasts on the internet. <laughs> well, I would say the, the second question will be very very easy to answer because yeah. it's also so very seamless on the limitless website all you have to do is you just register there you'll occasionally have to add add someone on ptcgo in order to trade the these accounts the packs that are required to entry fee but in terms of dropping entering your deck list reporting results is just all on play.limitless com right yeah, limitless tcg.com yeah. um, and really really it solved my kind of i didn't like i think that that's a big reason why i seem to be a tournament grinder whereas i wasn't initially as i just did i don't i just don't like discord it's just not something i've gotten into it's kind of another yet another facet of like nerd and gaming culture or something that just like flew me by while i was doing other things so i've just never ever used it so i'll, I'll definitely say i'm kind of like I don't get it. I don't, I don't get what it's for, like, at least to, to a certain degree. And so I didn't really enjoy tournaments where I just had to sit, hang out on the Discord all day and, like, wait for pairings and stuff to be posted. But it's all just so instant and easy on the Limitless website. I really think that's a huge reason why I play multiple a week. It's because it's, it's a click or two away on my browser to sign up. So you just have to enter your name, your PTCGO name. And then all the instructions are always well detailed on the website itself for the usernames you need to add and things like that. But even even it has a a button on the website for you to call a judge and they show up in your chat. It's just so much easier than the Discord, I think. But sequencing and stuff will be a little harder. I'm, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say, but I'll let Mikey take it from here. Yeah, well, the only thing I'll add for the online stuff is... Oh, maybe we can put the limitless link in like our description or whatever, so in case you're not sure. Sure. Yeah, in the show notes. But yeah, I mean, really everything is... Before, if you asked this question a couple of months ago before this came out, would have been a much more complicated answer. But I agree, it's a very straightforward process. The dashboard is kind of like which what houses all of your registrations and how you edit all that stuff. The main tournaments website has a nice clear couple sections of like current tournaments in progress or current tournaments, future tournaments, past tournaments. Yeah. So just kind of like click around, explore. Most of the tournaments do ask you to join their discord server, but it's kind of just like a just in case type of thing. And especially like if you end up getting prizes, sometimes they'll need to reach out to you on there. So I still join all of the servers, but I just mute them all. So I don't get all the notifications. And yeah, like Britt said, just kind of got to add someone on PTCGO and send a trade. Usually the way the trades work is you send one or two packs or whatever the entry fee is, and then they have a bunch of basic energy cards that are marked for trade because you got to send something back. So then, you know, they give you an energy card and you send them the two packs. But yeah, I think that pretty much covers that. Do you have to take take screenshots of your victory every time? Uh, You do not. Yeah. I mean, I did for a while 
but no, I haven't had anybody dispute the result. So yeah, I haven't had anyone dispute a single result yet either. Yeah, which is nice. I don't. Did, did you do screenshots during the the chill TCG tournament, Mike? I mean, that's a bigger bigger prizes. Like, I mean, the funny thing is, I feel like anybody that disputes most of these tournaments, it's like, why? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. No, I didn't even do it for that. I got in the habit of doing it at least at first because whenever I played online Hearthstone tournaments, they require it, right. and yeah. yeah, even even in Hearthstone too. In my experience, I found it was very rare to have yeah. you know a bad faith actor or what have you. And the ones that were were did it so consistently that they didn't have any legitimacy to their claims anymore because they were known for doing this sort of thing. I remember you know some story at a at a Grand Prix or what were those called? Not an MLG, but they they had those. I mean, once you do it. And once you do it twice, you're like already over the limit, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, you can do it once. You can do it once and, you know, get out of jail free or what have you. But at a certain point, yeah, I just, I think the moderators and stuff will keep, definitely keep note of it and things like that. The most difficult thing I've ever had happen was I just, this last Hexter is my like round one or two was they like checked in right away and said like, hey, sorry, I'm, a, I'm in a game let me finish and i was just like hey, and five minutes passed and i just said hey i'm happy to wait but i'm, I'm not i'm not taking a loss here if we tie i got <laughs> yeah, kind of right. mad about it but I, I thought it was strange that seemed reasonable <laughs> yeah. yeah especially i was not confrontational or aggressive about it i was just like these are yeah the like when he says he's guys. in a game like what's he doing just you see your game what are you playing the ladder for like you're just screwing around on a ladder man come on yeah. get with the program all right, let's try to let's try to answer this guy's other questions. So, what are some tips for better sequencing and planning out a game plan for certain matchups? So, I mean, we could like, we could go, we could probably talk about this for a long time, but it's hard. It's a little hard to know with without knowing a little more details, because both of those things are different, right? Like sequencing. I don't know, Brent, as you've kind of like looking over your book, the uh, quintessential practice for sequencing is take Archie's, Blato Archie's Blastoise and just solitaire with that and make try and get a <laughs> Blastoise as often as you can turn one. So just pure sequencing, that's probably my number one suggestion. Yeah, I, you know, it like it's it's interesting. It's, uh, it's a really good... I mean, finding a deck that kind of pops off turn one and just practicing, you know, popping off turn one over and over again is, is uh, really good. Ironically... Uh, I think because of like the meta we're in a little bit, like there's no decks that are really like that, you know, like it yeah. used to be, you could, you could practice like turn one full blitz with Pico Ram because mm -hmm. you, you had to find Thunder Mountain. Like, yeah, you know, you, you do all these things. Archie's Blastoise is a classic. Best Book of Vile Plume is a classic. So, uh, yeah. So I don't know if he, you know, this person means sequencing really in that sense, or if they more mean it like, you know, at various points throughout the game of like, you know, do, am I promoting the right thing after getting knocked out? Am I playing, you know, am I playing my supporter at the correct time? Should I be denning first versus marning first versus, you know, using this quick ball to take something from my deck so that then when I marnie, it goes to the bottom of my deck. Like there's, there's lots of, little things like that, that it's hard to give general advice. Here's, um, here's, here's actually, I, I actually have some good advice. I, okay. I, I did think about this when I was pacing this review in, and 
yeah, one thing that I'll say, I'd be interested in you guys' reaction is, I think if you're trying really to get better at sequencing, PTCGO sucks. <laughs> and like busting out real cards is probably a thing. And here's here's why. I feel like when I'm working on trying to get better at sequencing or when I'm playing with my kids and they're trying to get better at sequencing, takebacks matters. Like yeah, the yeah. problem with practicing sequencing is when you play on PTCGO and you mess up once, you're like, well, shit, I lost this game on to the next game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you don't really see like the cause and effect, right? As, as right. Or, or, or like you saw the one brutal thing you did, but you mm -hmm. never really got a chance to like work it all out, right? You're yeah, just like, yeah. oh man, I grabbed the Tepicoco instead of the Dedene and now I lose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but like, so, so there's something to be said for like, you gotta play, and, and and I think that this is true for thinking about specific matchups too. Like, just going on ladder on PTCGO and thinking you're gonna figure out how Senescorch versus Eternatus works. Like, nope, that's probably not gonna happen. Like, you gotta actually like find a buddy and practice. And if you want to work on sequencing, I think playing with physical cards and saying like, we're just gonna have some takebacks is probably important because like takebacks really helps. Mm -hmm. Isn't that couldn't you code like a, a sequencing practicer helper pre pretty easily? Like you you just have, you know, the the names for the cards or what have you, and then you can just kind of solitaire yourself in a way that's essentially P2CGO, but it's you know just nominal in an in an Excel sheet or something. Wouldn't that be something really pretty easy to to program? Yeah, probably. Why you know uh, like I know I I think we talked about this in the last part. I know everybody's done this at some point. Why not just sleeve up two decks and run back and forth from you know around the table right mm -hmm. i know i know there are stories of ross traveling <laughs> back in the day where he would be riding in cars and he would he would he managed to kind of invent a way to play against himself while in a car he it would involve maybe mikey can tell the rest of the story but i re recall hearing it i think adam bernola it's something adam bernola would tell me because they, they used to travel to events together but he would these the cards would be in in plastic bags or something like that it was it was designed in a way where he could kind of successfully do it but i don't i don't know how he kept things organized in a moving car that wouldn't have just been um a flat space but yeah the, i mean i do think brent is right that the best way to practice sequencing is definitely you know physical but in terms of just improving more generally i think and hopefully the being better at sequencing would come naturally with all of this. I had a couple of things I think I would say. The first is, and I think sort of in, in line with what Brent was saying, is you just need to find other people, not necessarily to play against, but just to almost play the same game together and really, really talk about the decisions. You know, I could be you can win a game in any number of ways too. So there's never, there's very rarely a one right answer. There's a lot of kind of different routes to get there, to get to taking your six prizes. And that's why I think having one, two, a couple people really makes that sort of process interesting. Really, really talking about, you know, I'm going to discard this with ultra ball instead of this. No, 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 no. You can't discard that. We'll need that for later. Like those are really some of the best learning environments you think. And I know, I'm talking about, you know, the Atlas Pog and things like that. That's one of these big things that the online events just don't have is that that night before experience where you're doing that with a hotel room full of people. Yeah, like uh, they, you, you're sitting there and like talking about how to play out the matchup, right? Yeah, and then kind of on that note too, this is something I think I've said before, but 
is ask. I know it's so hard and scary sometimes, but especially when you're newer or something, but you need to just, and I know it's, you know, so much of this is not doable online or something like that, but it's really, really common. It's how we improve in fighting games and stuff is you just, you play a long set with your opponent and say, you get your butt kicked. You just ask them, why was that easy for you? What, you know, what specifically was I doing that made that easy for you? And again, with Pokemon, it's going to be a little bit different and harder to gauge, but I think just asking, you know, this position of humility, I think so many people just obfuscate or they, you know, it's, it's hard for them to get into that position, but I really think you just learn so much better when you recognize like, I need help. I'm the one who doesn't understand rather than just like, no, I I just got unlucky. Maybe if I had done something differently, Um, like, no, it's this position of sort of just needing someone else. And with a lot of the matchups we've talked about, a lot of the big decks, like we say, are really pretty close, but there's always like a tiny, tiny point that is hard to notice. It's hard to, to, to reach on your own. And that again, is just where talking to these good players really helps. And I think that's something that Pokemon really has in a way that many other card games don't is I think that our top players almost every single one of them are approachable. They'll talk to you. I don't think, like I I tested with Danny yesterday and practiced games with Danny. I think Danny would talk to anybody. You know, I don't think this was sort of an interaction that I, you know, had a special privilege, special access to. I think Danny and Azul, people like that, especially anyone big and streaming like Chip, just um, like, hey, I, I keep losing to Senescorch's Picarom, and I, I hear, I see that that really should be going my way. You know, what's what's the key play to this matchup? And, you know, for instance, this I, I figured this out playing with Danny yesterday is that we've talked about it a time or two at the show, how the LMZ versus Picarom matchup went. And I had this kind of personal experience of, you know, I thought it was really favored for LMZ. Then with heavy bolt hunt, I really started losing to the point where I thought it was really unfavorable. But that entire impression was, you know, predicated on an error. I was just doing something wrong. A very, I was benching Lucario Melmetal like a turn or two too early. It was something as simple as that, you know, is really what makes the difference. And I just, you know, I had to ask, I have to say, hey, you're telling me this matchup is better than I think it is. You're a better player than me. I'm going to assume you're right. You know, what's the difference between our two perspectives? And we played it out. And now I understand like, yeah, I was, I was just doing something wrong. This matchup has been fine the whole time. And I just think experiences like that are just really the most economical way to improve. And especially too, because these matchups really do, I, I like the, I like the phrasing like, you know, key turn or key play, because a lot of them are just that. And Lucario Melmetal is a, maybe a good a, a deck to reference because you know, you might think you need the Lucario full metal wall every single game, but you don't. You only need it in a couple matchups. And then, you know, some of your your strategy sometimes is just really aggressive Zacians. And if you think that you have to go, if you're just under the impression that you full metal wall GX every game, no matter what, then you'll, you sort of lose the tempo to play aggressively when you need to. And that's why you might be losing that matchup when you should be winning it. And just things like that over and over. I'm trying to think of other examples but i know you know let's say the the peaker versus eternatus matchup the really the key play is not just paralysis you have to save your disruption for the paralysis and i think maybe that's part of maybe sequencing that can go over the head of a newer player is that 
you just have the disruption is so important right now. You just have to have it when you need it. And sometimes that means like sitting on it if you have to, things like that. Like you can't just, you have to be cognizant of your Marnies. How many Marnies have I played this game? How many Marnies are in my deck? Will I have the Marnie for the turn I need it? And things like that. And if the answer is no, then you, you have to sit on the Marnie, even if it's not an ideal turn, even if it's a turn where you wish you were playing cards, drawing more cards, you just have to, you slowly become more and more aware of these sorts of things. And I just don't think there's a better way to learn than to ask to talk to the player who, who do know these things, who might even naturally learn them compared to someone who has to be taught. But, you know, it's just a waste of time if you just kind of sit there and run your head in, into the wall and just like hope that it'll click. Maybe I'll get it next time. Whereas, you know, I don't know, it's really, this is something really hard for me to do. I'm really kind of um, not all that talkative. I'm kind of quiet and things like that. Or at least, at least in my fighting game experience, I really had to work up courage to talk to my opponents, to be like, you know, hey, you know, why did I lose? Whereas if I didn't say anything, I just wasted an hour getting my butt kicked and I didn't learn anything from it. And it's just really that, that moment where you just have to work up the courage and talk to someone you don't know, which is something that's always been pretty hard for me. But hopefully that will sort of put you in the right direction. I think sequencing, like Mikey says, is pretty context driven, I think. So it's hard to give general advice because what you're supposed to discard with your quick ball is going to depend on your prizes on your deck on the board state things like that but i think all of it all of it is very much related that once you get one piece of it you might have two or three and then it just builds and builds and builds from a small foundation up to you know where it's just natural like i don't i i don't think i sequence you know as well as azul or someone obviously but even in my long hiatuses from the game, I don't really, I feel like I've still retained most of my sequencing knowledge. It's not something you lose. It's something kind of self-evident once you, once it's clicked for you the first time, but until it does, there are plenty of resources I think out there for you to sort of accelerate the process. Yeah. So a couple other, a couple other ideas in this like virtual, especially in the virtual environment, like Britt said, the, the best thing is to like be able to talk to people, but if you know you don't always have someone available, whatnot. So I would recommend watching someone like Azul or Pablo or whoever else streaming. And you know, at the beginning of before they do their action, pause whatever video or stream, think about what you would do, and then hit play, right? And then see if you did the same thing. Sometimes they'll explain their play as they're going, sometimes not. And if you know you're your thought diverged with what they did. Think about why. I mean, you could be correct. Like, don't don't dismiss yourself outright. Like, pl- top players make mistakes all the time, right? And so, but just think about what was the difference there. Why did they do this versus versus that? So that's one thing you could do. One resource that I think was really cool. I don't know if you guys got to watch it at all this weekend. I didn't watch the whole thing because it was quite long. But the like the U.S. versus Europe seven on seven thing. That was really cool. It had uh, you know seven of the best North America players versus seven of the best Europe players, and uh, I like to think seven of the eight best U.S. players. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> but it was cool because at any given point they had maybe like three or four people on the call, and so they each turn took like an excruciating long time but it was cool because you got to hear like all these different perspectives and lines of play and whatnot and like i said i didn't watch the whole thing because it was like eight hours long but that's like a super cool resource to go and watch and you get to really hear 
the perspectives from different people. So I don't know if those videos are up. I know the Europe side was on Pedro's stream. So maybe the VODs are up on that. And I think the NA side was on Franco Takahashi's stream. So you could try and find that as well. Um, I think the, the only, the one thing I, I forgot to mention is just be, be scientific, be meticulous about it. Play a game where you say, I'm not sure if this is the right decision, but let's find out. You know, a game where you, you're, you're tasked with having to decide how aggressively you, you have to discard with the Dene or something. And that's what testing is for. Play, play games, right. play games using, going, following a route that you're, you know, entirely unsure of. And even if it seems obvious or something like, okay, that didn't work. Now I know. Now I'll never do that again. Things like that, I think, are always very important. And I, you know, I don't think I was any too too good at this back in the day. But I guess that's the convenience of this all being on the computer is that I was I have Google Google Docs open or something too. I'm I'm making notes myself when I'm trying to to learn things in my testing, and just you know do that under like I don't have a good example of you know choosing a path that you know might not be wrong for the sake of science or something like that. But I think it'll happen. I especially you know awkward boss plays and things like that you're really not sure which one you just got to pick something and where if you had chosen the other one then sometimes you have to realize that too especially if you lose or not you have to say like well had I done this differently then I would have won and of course you can't count it as a win I think players (laughs) sort of have a tendency to do that sometimes they count some losses as wins for you know various reasons like, oh that would never happen or oh i didn't mean to do that or something like that but so be i mean being being honest in your results and stuff too matters just as uh, just as much yeah last the last comment that i'll say and then maybe we can move on planning out a game plan very certain matchups i mean i think we've touched on a lot of stuff but the lot i like try to think about at least the first couple turns if I'm thinking about a certain matchup, I'm like, what is the ideal thing that I want to do? And what is the ideal thing that my opponent wants to do? So I'll give you a concrete example. Um, going back actually to the Picaram versus LMZ matchup, because I was playing LMZ at the Players' Cup, so I thought about this very theoretically. I was like, okay, so the Picaram player wants to go second and start Bolton, right? That is the ideal Picaram start in pretty much every matchup. So what is my ideal start against that? So I want to go... If I'm going first, I want to get a Zacian down, attach to it, an Intrepid Sword into an Energy. Because if I do that, then I can threaten to knock out the Bolton on turn two. And so I think that's just like a good example of at least thinking about the first couple of turns of the game. What is the ideal? You know, it's not going to play out that way every single game. But if you think of the what is the best thing that my opponent can do on any given turn, and what is my best response on any given turn, then I think that helps the planning process a little bit in terms of specific matchups and you can really do that in any in any matchup so boom let's let's move on let's talk about other stuff thanks for thanks for that review that was a good review and good got us good some good discussion going yeah so so here Corey henry i'm going to show my segue skills by telling you if you send an email to brent at trashlanch.com i will i will hop on and do some specific matchup testing with you uh, which leads us to the next topic I want to talk about. Dude, the new Trash Lanch website, trashlanch.com. Yay. Hey, nice. Why we should thank Channel Fireball is is helping sponsor that website. 
they they agreed to pick up the tab for the domain. I really, really appreciate it because now we have the cool domain. You got to have the cool domain because uh, people do that kind of thing. Yeah, it looks great. <laughs> did you put it together? I assume you did. I did. I did. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Technology. <laughs> uh, really, it's just a matter of like, we, we use Buzzsprout to host the, the pod and Buzzsprout has this thing that lets you like redirect like domains to their thing. It took me a while to figure it out, but I'm like just the right kind of nerd that I was able to figure out how to do that, that kind of thing. And then I figured I, I set up email forwarding so people can email us at trashlance.com and we're available all the time for all of your uh, podcasting needs. Let's talk about let's talk about V Union. That's breaking news. And people seem to be tweeting about V Union a lot. I feel like it's a lot of tweets about nothing. And we, uh, we don't know anything. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, as as Will Post tweet said, you know, with any luck, it'll be a you know six prize Pokemon, and you're just not. Gonna <laughs> <do it. laughs> yeah, I mean, I think too. I think why my quote unquote, why do we play Pokemon is kind of in reference to that in reference to these very reactionary takes of just like, ah, it's more tag team, I'm quitting. And, you know, the question is like, and I'll give another example to go with it too, that, that that's on my mind as well. But, you know, I, I see that and I, I think to myself, like, it's probably going to be a multi-prizer. It's probably going to be not my ideal card, but I, I just sort of, you know, like I've said before, like I, I play Pokemon. I'm, I'm here to play wh- whatever cards they throw at me or something like that. And I just, I just can't sort of imagine, like I understand at a certain point you have to decide if you truly, truly are not having fun or something like that. You don't have to play, but I, I just seem to be able to enjoy the game, regard even though I don't en- agree with or enjoy the dev- design philosophy behind a lot of the cards and things like that. And I was just thinking last night, you know, before playing the Hexters tournament, I had a friend who they were talking about playing it and they decided not to. And their, their reasoning for um, not playing, they said something to the effect of like, well, I wasn't going to play first because I just sort of thought that I had to but now I realize it's optional and you know I don't have to play therefore I don't want to and my sort of just thought was like isn't that always the case you know (laughs) um and and I think so and I, I again think that you know if it is always the case for the most part and so if you're sort of only interested in in winning I think you know you just you're just never going to be satisfied. I don't, I don't think people who, people who don't enjoy it to like they're losing as much as they're winning are kind of never going to stick around for too long because ultimately what they're after is something tangential to the game itself. They're after success, fame, the thrill of doing well, things like that. And, you know, not necessarily anything rooted in the game itself. And yeah, I mean, just kind of in relation to both those points, I just, I'm in a di- clearly a different place sort of mentally than these sorts of people, but I just think it seems to be the the healthier approach. I think like I'll play, you know, if I don't, if I don't want to play Pokemon, I won't play Pokemon, but until then V union can be whatever it wants to be. And we'll, we'll find out when we do or similarly, like I'm going to keep signing up to play Hexters, you know, for them every week, even though I go into every week and because I'm after something more than winning, I'm after Im- improvement and I enjoy Podcast content. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, let's talk about Pokemon now, guys. First, 
let's give let's give Channel Fireball our favorite sponsor a, a moment of props uh, because Grant has broken this primal Flygon deck that that I think was definitely the new spice for like forty eight hours. You guys tried it. Is there anything we should talk about with respect to Primal Flygon? Is Primal Flygon good? And I have to say, I wanted to try it, but I could not get the Vibravas. I don't understand how you guys got it. I know when you guys were like, we're testing it, I complained. But, like, Vibravas, they're hard to get. Just trade for them. They're not worth anything. Yeah, yeah. I just put up a trade There were Literally, when we tried to trade for them, this was and this was like 12 hours after Grant's article came out, there were, like, no Vibravas available. <laughs> I just, I put up, like, my own trade. For like, yeah, I never, I never find anything in public trades. Everything I get is through my own trades. But yeah, so I don't know. I I played like five games with a couple different lists of this. It's okay. It's fine. I think I think like its matchups that it can win are pretty good. Like they're not they're not like super blowout wins, but they're certainly favorable. Like against Picaram and ADP, I think you're solidly favored. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have matchups that are completely, completely unwinnable. Like you can never ever beat Blacephalon. It's impossible. So so I don't know. Like if if you like decks that have very polarizing matchups, and I feel like Primal Groudon was similar you know, different, you know, there were so many iterations of it that it's hard to say, but I feel like it was similar in the sense that it had some polarizing matchups and it was kind of always like, if it hit the right, like if you played in the right metagame where it's bad matchups weren't, you know, very prominent, then you would do well with it. And I feel like this could be similar, but I I just don't feel like the metagame's really going to be in a spot for it to be like the best deck, but maybe it will be at some point. I played it quite a bit. I streamed it for a while, and there's kind of seems to be two different builds on it because Philip Schultz post- posted a list that doesn't play Mallow and Lana, whereas I think the initial strategy is predicated on being able to chain Mallow and Lanas. And I tried them both, and I don't really have an impression of which is better. I will say that as just kind of a general frustration, it's very hard to do any amount of testing on PTCGO because people just don't play like people are playing the off meta decks on the ranked ladder more so than anywhere else. And so I just played against Charizard like four times, which was unwinnable (laughs) because they can, they can, they can do enough damage and our one prizer, they can eventually just beat you pretty easily. Yeah. It's, it feels like a deck. I think if you had the right metagame call, I think you would do very well, but it's similar to Blacephalon, I think in the sense that, it's very more susceptible to disruption than other decks you than the kind of big big boy decks in that you just really have big hands and you really there's a lot of pieces you need to to win the game you're always going to be behind and so at any point when a key disruption hits you you have to draw out of it immediately or you might just lose on the spot and so that's never good and then of course you have other things with like a good mawile just ends your game Things like that. There's a lot of kind of variants that can go wrong, but it's fun. I don't know. I guess I guess it's funny. Any all these bad decks I enjoy playing, I, I will say, are fun. <laughs> but I don't know what, what that necessarily means. Is it fun because I know I'm not going to win, and so <laughs> I don't have as much pressure, or is it actually kind of a mechanic thing? I'm not sure. But at any rate, I think the list could maybe still be cracked. It's interesting it's an interesting deck to be sure and you know i think a lot of it's fighting type like we keep saying fighting 
is a really good type, but Colossal may or may not be good enough to really um, have a fighting presence in the metagame now. But we'll see. I think the list can definitely improve and get better if people continue to work on it. And I think the concept is good enough in theory, but we'll see if anyone is able to really crack it open. I think it's a solid tier three deck, probably. I think my Orbital deck is better, but it's fun to play. <laughs> that's that's how bad it is. You know, to your comment about, about how it's fun, I mean, I, I think I told you guys last week that, that my son is kind of picking it up a little more. And I mean, I don't want to break the meta or anything, but he's basically spent all of his time working on this Trevnor deck that he calls Duskner 100 because one in a hundred times it works really well. <laughs> I love it. Every uh, you know one percent of all games, he like turn two sets the guy's hand to you know with zero cards and just proceeds to wreck them. <laughs> and he's like, this is the greatest deck of all time if it weren't for the 99 losses it took to get here. <laughs> but at least he has the self-awareness to, you know, not not have the, you know, a cognitive bias to say it worked once, therefore it's good. Right. <laughs> he still recognizes it only works one in a hundred times. <laughs> all right. Should we, talk about, should we talk about the Players' Cup too? Yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about the Players Cup for for two seconds, since Pokemon never seems to. I mean, I you know I love to diss Pokemon's marketing, but like I think it's really really weird how Pokemon's never like tweeting out what's going on in the Players Cup and like who the players are and like trying to build up their own celebrities in the metagame. Like it's weird. Very strange. Yes. Props to Zach Lesage for advancing to the uh, top four in North America, along with Owen Johnson, Hugo La Pereri, La Per. Latin America qualifiers, Renzo Zambrano, Alex Silva, Pablo Lieva, and Diego Casaraga. And uh, who else uh, got there? EU, Tim Cox, Lorenzo Falai, Francisco Caterina, Marco Previati. See, I would have said Francesco, but I, I heard them say on stream that it was Francisco. So we're going to go mm. with that. And then in Oceania... Brent Tonneson, Christian Hasbani, Sam Clayfield, James Cox. I mean, I think a bunch of these people are people that, that the internet knows. So I can't believe Brent Tonneson has made it. That's so crazy to me. I mean, like Brent's a great player, so it's not crazy that he made it, but he has been like really on top of Hearthstone as well. Like, like rank one on multiple servers on and off kind of the last six months or so. So the fact that he just kind of like came back to Pokemon and casually made top four here is extremely impressive. That's really cool. So so the thing I wanted to get you guys' reactions to were the deck choices because I found the deck choices super uninteresting. And kind of to, to Britt's point earlier in the pod, like no Picaroms. Oh, yeah. Well, okay. So let's see. So Latin America was three ADPs and a Center Scorch. NA was one Center Scorch, one ADP, one Luke Metal, one Blacephalon. And then I don't see. Oh, oh, okay. And then EU, two ADPs, two Lucarios, Oceania, two ADPs, one Lucario, one Eternatus. Hmm. No, not just Eternatus. Eternatus oh, Spiritum. Sorry, sorry, sorry. In Playfield, we salute you for your excellent, <laughs> excellent deck choice. 
the the closest thing I think there was to an iota of originality and <laughs> in a wave of uh, I think pretty uninteresting deck choices. Yeah, so lots of ADP. Looks like Lucari Malmetal was the second biggest one. Only the one Eternatist, a couple Senna Scourge, one Blown. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, like we knew that going into this, that ADP was the best deck, right? And so it's probably the most played deck. Oh, actually. We don't have the counts, I think, for... No, we do. If you scroll down, we have the most common decks overall. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so you can't even see ADP on this chart. It just keeps going. (laughs) Okay, I'm fixing fixing it right now. But yeah, that is really surprising about Picaram because it was the second most played deck. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought Picaram would have found a way to uh, get there somehow. Yeah. I just think that... You know, the players, this this is so long ago. Didn't they submit their deck list for this, like, the first week of November? Because the players' co- initial qualification closed October 28th. So it just feels like so much of this was really before Pikara, before Mikey's big win. And even before that, because now we have, like, two Pikaram decks. We have the Mikey 60 and then the EU version with right. Quad Boltond. And I just... I just think that's missing. Like the, the data we have here is not necessarily indicative of not because it's just, it's metagames ago. It's from the metagame where Scorch was still really good, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to gauge, I think. At least for me, that's, I, I don't have a whole lot to say for those reasons. I think that, because I remember Mikey saying from his experience that he thought the play was, might've been Eternatus. Base. I can't remember why you say that, but I remember that being your kind of conclusion from the day. Yeah. Um, which would have been good in a heavy peek around meta, to be sure. So maybe I'm wrong then. So do we do we have any? Are, are there any people that we think of as as favorites here? Like when you look at any of the stuff, are there any like tips? I mean, Diego certainly has, is the player with the biggest accomplishment. Um, I would Diego say, but. Well, as Mikey was saying, Brent, outside of his Hearthstone prowess, has kind of been the best player. I mean, I guess we have Henry Brand, the world champion. But in terms of just general reputation, I know Brent has basically been considered the best player from Australia for years now. So I would think that his ability to excel at multiple games should be a testament to his ability to succeed at card games. But I mean, obviously, Zach Lesage is a good player, and I'm sure many of the other players are, I mean, obviously, they're very good to have made it this far. I'm sorry, I don't know a little more about most of them. But I would say it's probably anyone's game. No, No need for favorites or anything like that here. I would imagine all 16 players have a pretty good shot to when they all get, they you get to pick a new deck, right? Yeah, because we're in a new format now. Right, right. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. I kind of agree with uh, Britt. I don't really have a s- strong pick. If I had to pick one person to win the whole thing, I guess I'd pick Diego. Not only do I know Diego is a good player, but he's also, out of all these people, probably the person I'm closest friends with, so... <laughs> <laughs> That hey, that well, I mean, I think a good way to pick someone is to pick the person you'd like to win, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I I was sad to see James Goring lose in the uh, OC regional finals because he was like the first person from Australia I ever met in my like Pokemon uh, journey. So mm. sad to see him make top sixteen and sad to see him lose. 
I know we were all sad to see Benji uh, Famalus with attacking Excadrill. Uh, although I think we saw it coming. Yep. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, like, yeah that, deck, that deck just sort of vanished, didn't it? Maybe maybe it could creep back in now that the decks are playing four Boltund. <laughs> I did see there was some like uh, like small invitational tournament last week with only like, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 people and like four or five people brought Excadrill because it was like the day after, like I had won on Sunday and then Vitor won like the next two days with the same 60. And then on Wednesday was that tournament. So like people just brought Excadrill and I saw one of them lost round one to Picaram. So I was like, what the heck? <laughs> you know, I think that's the problem, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's let's talk about uh, are there things that we want to talk about from the tournaments last week? I know I pasted a ton of results for Pokestats. We appreciate Pokestats for always pulling this uh, this data together. Here, here's the thing I want to talk about. The, the first thing I want to talk about is why are you guys not playing Picaram? Like I felt <laughs> like a week ago, it was obvious to me that Picaram is the best deck in the universe, and I feel like since I had that realization, neither one of you has played Picaram in a tournament. Did you see the, I had a tweet about it. I had a, I quote tweeted this fighting game Twitter that just kind of quotes scrubs saying things. And it was someone saying, I don't like playing the mirror or dittos as they're called sometimes because the person with the better decision-making wins. <laughs> that's why I don't play, that's why I don't play Peeker. <laughs> but no, I think why more specifically is that I, I just never play the top deck to a fault. I'm always trying to look for, something in the middle, something like, you know, as coming from low, smaller meta games where I would have to make, you know, a deck choice that doesn't have auto losses. I just like the mere fact that I could lose to Colossal scares me sometimes. I don't know. I don't have a good reason for not playing it. I imagine I'll um, try it here before long. I don't know what I was going to play for Hexters on Monday if Danny hadn't tried to talk to me, talk me into LMZ. Mike, well, you can so, make a better excuse than, than that. <laughs> well, so I did play it in one... I only played one event during the weekdays last week, but I did run Picaram for that, and I think I went, like, X2 and missed cut, or... I don't remember exactly, but I did play it for one, and then I played Eternatus for the Sunday Open because I kind of thought... I was like, well, let's try and stay one step ahead, right? Like, Eternatus right. is really good against Pika in general, and it's pretty good against adp so and it went pretty well i mean i made top eight the sunday open with it so that was it and then yesterday I, I was like i didn't really know what i wanted to play and so i built an adp list not doing that again adp is just too unpredictable so, so that was my reasoning i think the the biggest tournament i wanted to talk about is well colossal finally won something right that's yeah worth talking about yeah, the Hegster Hyperlux uh, qualifier on Saturday. And, and there wasn't anything, like, there was no spice or anything in it, really. It's kind of what the lists look like for the most part. Just got some Rotom Foams and some Crushing Hammers, because why not? But yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting, and I've really been surprised that people aren't talking more about it. I'm, I've been particularly confused. I don't know how how it beats Scorch in the finals. That just matchup doesn't seem good at all. But yeah, I would, I'm really curious. And again, don't know why more people aren't trying 
colossal now that maybe it was just a freak thing. I don't know. It seems hard to get a freak win in a long tournament. Like it would be one thing if it were a 30 person event or something like that with half the field playing Picarom or something, but to win Hexters is no easy task. And so yeah, I'm, true. I haven't tested it at all. I've, I've meant to, I have all the cards for it, but I, I guess I just played Flygon instead for my <laughs> odd testing. Right. So, so I had two, two more questions that, that I specifically had. First, do you guys have any take on this this four Bolton build? Like, uh, yeah, like you now see a lot of people that are playing Picaram instead of playing Mike's List are playing the like no hammers four Bolton package, no energy switches. How do we feel about that? I'm undecided. I'm actually going to play in one of the tournaments tonight just to kind of like try it for the first time. I was reluctant to play it at first because Bolton's cost 16 packs online and i only had two boltons so <laughs> but i bit the bullet today and we're uh, yeah i have two i have two boltons and they're, they're like both in the deck i'm like okay we're never gonna test the four one yep <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah we're gonna try it tonight i don't know like it it's you're just playing more boltons so you start with it more and like get the turn one or turn two or really turn one electrify i mean that's really the only reason i think it's just i think they call i think Tord called it no brick pika <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the second question i had is the the big tournament uh, yesterday the the hegster uh, number 12 the second and third place list i don't know if you guys saw this so it was won by the four bolton picaram and then second place was this persian munchlax deck and then third place was uh mad tea party yes i did see all of that and i looked at the mad tea party list and it seemed just as like straightforward as you would ever expect i i don't understand how it could do well but i i thought i should check in with you guys because it is very rare for us to see decks that we rarely see do well i mean that's weirder than colossal right yeah i'll i'll have to look at the persian munchlax deck Uh, control seems to just really be struggling right now but I imagine it kind of will look fairly similar to the the list that Sander has been posting. But yeah, I mean, it's not all that surprising. Mad Party is going to have some good games eventually. It's going to have games where it has a billion Pokemon in the discard on the first or second turn. Like, sometimes that just happens. And when it does, you beat the three prize decks pretty easily. You know, Mad Party's always been fine. It just typically isn't fast enough and so the games where you just happen to have five pokemon in a dedene like you win and that's always going to be the case i think so i'd wager that just happens but maybe they're a mad party player and they really just grind it and grind it and grind it and are playing it at a higher percentage than an average person or even a good player picking up mad party and playing it for the first time so that would be my sort of assessment of it but i doubt We'll continue to see it. How does is it? Uh, does Picarom is usually pretty good against Mad Party? Mm, I don't I know. I think it, it depends. I think it depends on the Vikavolt. Like if they get a quick Vikavolt, it's probably pretty good. But if they don't, then it's bad because you, you like you you want to item lock and if they get enough guys to just like KO your Vikavolt pretty quickly, then you're probably in a bad spot. But if you can Vikavolt quickly and then set up Tag Bolt, you're probably in a good spot. Yeah, that was more or less what I thought. And so with Picarom replacing ADP. I guess I'm not sure if it did. I'm seeing lots and lots of ADPs in this top eight, 
that your peak around matchup is probably better than your ADP matchup. And so yeah. if more people are playing that, uh, Mad Party has a better chance of doing well. Yeah, I, like I, I assume ADP is still the most popular deck, and I just can't imagine a world where they're able to somehow navigate that matchup, you know? Yeah. I mean, some games they're going to, they might have the, that KO when you alter and then you got it. Then they have three turns and you have two turns. Yeah. I mean, they did, I, I did look at its matchup because I was curious. The first, I didn't really look at it uh, afterward, but they beat four ADPs in the first five rounds. So <laughs> that's pretty impressive to me. That's a, yeah, that's impressive. It's a uh, mad, mad tea party. Apparently that is the new meta. I mean, it's like we were saying, they have the the key play, the key turn that we don't we don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they have some secret information we just might not have that really changes the way you approach the matchup or something. Yeah, yeah, pretty neat. All right, guys, anything else we should talk about? I don't think so. Oh, we've been going for an hour and fifteen minutes. That's another pod in the books. Mm-hmm. I tried to get uh, JW3Wall to record a bassoon outro for us. <laughs> yeah, I saw you talking to him on Twitter. Man, 